Hey everybody, this is Reagan Canope. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. Americans do not like to elect the same party after they voted for one party. They generally like to elect the other party to have a check on power. And it is better if Republicans control the Senate and control the House heading into the presidential election than if, let's say, the Democrats were to maintain control of both of those branches. In Oregon, remember, ballots are mailed four to six weeks before mm -hmm. the election or about four weeks before the election. So really, you only have a month until, quote unquote, election day starts in Oregon. The clock is sort of ticking there in terms of when those dollars are going to be spent most efficiently. Hey everybody, this is Reagan Canope. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. Ben is gone this week. He's up to some interesting stuff. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, so I'll let him come back next week and tell us. So today, filling in, I brought Alex Titus back. Alex, former co-host of the Oregon Bridge. He's also worked for some national Republican organizations that have spent money, raised money, supported candidates. I asked for his perspective. What do those national groups think about Oregon? Do they think Oregon's winnable? Do they think Oregon is not winnable? We discussed that here on the podcast and the future of the Oregon Republican Party. Hope you guys enjoy it. Well, today, my guest is actually a former host, Alex Titus. He's a host emeritus with the Oregon Bridge podcast. Alex, how are you doing this afternoon? Good, good. I'm, uh, I'm glad you asked my initial guest question, too. So I'm, I'm mostly excited about how my bio in the intro to this, this episode, I'll act like the usual guest, you know, thank you so much, Reagan. I'm doing great today. It's lovely to be on the program. And you're coming to us from the great free state of Florida, right, Alex? Yes, and I'm actually coming too from the, the National Conservative Conference. And I actually went to the first National Conservative Conference in 2020 when it first started. And not to get too inside baseball-y, but it's sort of protracted from a debate that sort of a more free market person was having with a more Trump-aligned person in terms of economic policy and things like that, social policy. Started this conference. It was pretty small. And when I went to it just now in Miami, there was supposedly over 900 people there. And they had 100 wow. speakers. Ron DeSantis was there. Rick Scott was there. There was a bunch of different Republican representatives from various states and things like that. So it was very interesting. And clearly, a lot of folks on the right are very pumped for the 2022 and I would say 2024 election coming off of that. So a lot of excitement so far, which speaks to the potential red wave that we might be seeing. So, Well, and that's what I brought you here to talk about. So just to make sure that everyone is informed here and nobody gets too scared, Ben will be back. We'll let him tell us what he was doing while he was gone. But rest of the search is very important. He's not going anywhere. We're like, just experimenting. We're like, we, we actually fired Ben. So, so <laughs> it's, just, he's, it's just Reagan. He didn't fire Ben. He's just on administrative leave. Um, no. And uh, we'll be have some more interviews. Um, but we wanted to try a couple of different things. And so this episode, we've got Alex, because we are talking Republican politics and specifically talking about how the national environment is or isn't influencing Oregon's elections coming up. And we're going to look at a lot of these races and kind of look at the top Republican candidates and see who has a shot to win, who doesn't, and kind of what's moving in their favor and what's moving in the Democrats' favor. And just kind of analyze some of these races for people. So we'll hope you enjoy it. So let's, I want to start off, Alex, and talk about the midterm environment overall. Can you tell us what Republicans think? Let's start at the national level. What Republicans at the national level think about the midterm environment and if it's favorable or not favorable or or some of both? Yeah, I mean, Republicans nationally, I mean, it's going to be a favorable environment. And largely that's due to, I mean, I think a lot of the issues that people are facing, inflation, rising costs, things like that, but also just Americans do not like to elect the same party after they voted for the other, or, sorry, after they voted for one party, they generally like to elect the other party to have a check on power. And there's only like three or four times in the past two centuries in America that one party has been able to hold the house with, or basically has either picked up seats after they had just had a recent presidential election or something like that. I'm sure I can probably find an article to link to that. I would say there's been... Quite a lot of media lately saying that, you know, oh, it actually might not be that great of a year for Republicans. They've been having some candidate recruitment problems. They've been having some money problems and things like that. I don't disagree 
with any of that, actually. I mean, Democrats are outraised. We can talk about the Oregon races, but at least nationally, Democrats are substantially outraising Republicans from a small dollar perspective. It's actually incredibly impressive what the DCCC and Act Blue has been able to do. They're just killing it on small dollar fundraising. I think that the Dems have been able to also recruit quite a few good candidates as well to run in some of the open seats. And I think some of their incumbents are pretty strong as well. So, you know, that's always something that would be factored into any election. But I think in, you know, that is a little bit overhyped in the sense of that history is pointing in the literal right direction of saying that Republicans, it's likely to be a good cycle just kind of based on the factors that are in play. So I would expect the same for that to be in Oregon. But I mean, as I have said, also, many times on this podcast that the sort of red wave always seems to miss Oregon. And I think part of that has actually been some of the issues I just mentioned before, poor candidate selection from the Oregon GOP, and then Mm -hmm. poor fundraising. But the Oregon Democratic Party, for some specific reason, has just been extraordinarily resilient in terms of with different elections. And I mean, you could look at the numbers on this, but in terms of even in places like California and the state of Washington, which are, of course, I would say bluer states, You don't see the same sort of resistance and ability to, you know, really put the money down and win races that you do with the Oregon Democratic Party. So Mm -hmm. I don't think they should be underestimated at all coming into this because they've shown time and time again for these upsets during so-called red wave years. Yep. And I think I agree with that mostly. I think there are a lot of Democrats who were a couple of months ago feeling terrible about how things were going. And Biden's numbers were bad, all the midterm numbers were bad. And then some of those numbers have rebounded. And I agree, I think some of that is real. I think some of that is just kind of reverting to the mean on the polling numbers, because there's nothing that's really driving a really significant change in polling right now. And then I think some of it also is just you have to remember, it doesn't, we've had some pretty I'll say we've had some polling misses in some of these midterm years where the Mm -hmm. polling is overestimated Democrats a little bit and underestimated Republicans a little bit. And especially you look at there was a thread on Twitter. I don't know if I'll be able to find it or not. That went through and showed like the average polling miss in U.S. Senate races. It's like four to six points in favor of Republicans where they were overestimating Democrats in Mm. U.S. Senate races. Right. And so if that happens again, you'll see a bunch of races that Democrats thought they had won be close and you'll see close races be won by Republicans in a lot of situations. So and I'm not saying that any of those races are going to go particular ways. I'm just saying it's happened before. And I kind of think it could happen again. I mean, looking at the. U.S. Senate forecast right now, the most likely forecast Democrats win 50 or 51 seats, according to 538. But in the House, Republicans are still favored to win the House out of in 73 out of 100 scenarios. Right. And so you kind of get this maybe traditional midterm kickback. And now it's not a 2010 wave where it's 40 or 50 seats. But Republicans also had a lot fewer seats in the House at that point. It's like a five or six seat difference right now. And so it doesn't take them very many seats to flip the house. All right. So I kind of want to move on to the next part of this, which is national Republican groups and how much they care about Oregon. So I'm going to give you a polling scale, kind of. So I'm going to ask you about each of these groups. I'm going to describe them. And then you're going to tell me if you think they care a lot about Oregon, they care a little bit about Oregon, or they do not care about Oregon at all. If they had to identify Oregon on a map, they wouldn't be able to do it. So let's start with the RNC. And I think what's interesting to me about the Republican National Committee is a lot of people are unclear about what they do. And even if I tried, I couldn't give you a full explanation of what they do. But a lot of people think that the RNC is the one coordinating everything at the national level. And I'd have to say, for the most part, that's not super true. They're very critical in presidential election years, but they tend to play a supporting role in midterm years. Alex, number one, do you think that assessment is right? And number two, how much do you think they care about Oregon? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. They're much more important for presidential year building, which if you're in, say, where I'm at, Florida right now, the RNC may be deploying a lot of door knockers, ground resources, and things like that to help Marco Rubio or help Ron DeSantis or whoever, but they're actually really kind of doing a test run up to 2024 with some of the things Mm -hmm. that they've built over the past two years. And just with Oregon not 
having any sort of competition with the presidential election. I don't think you'll see those same sort of targeted deployment efforts at the RNC level that you might in a state like Florida or Pennsylvania or Arizona or something like that. So I, I think your analysis is basically spot on. So are you saying that they care a little bit about Oregon or not at all about Oregon? And I have a, I do have a quick thought on this to so give this you quite a insider information. I think they care at least a little bit about Oregon because we've been getting a lot of attention this time around. And, you know, some of the other groups that we'll talk to on your list as well, too, have been giving quite a bit of love and attention to the state. So I'm sure it's definitely on the radar and on the battle maps as well. And of course, you at the end of the day, you always have to think that it is better if Republicans control the Senate and control the House heading into the presidential election than if, let's say, the Democrats were to maintain control of both of those branches. So it's it's generally better to have more of your guys and gals elected than to have more of the other parties, even for the presidential side of things. OK, I think that is a good analysis there. And the other thing I would say to that, too, is that my contact, especially with the Oregon Republican Party, is they're getting a lot of help from the RNC in terms of getting their party more organized than it's been a mess in the past. And they seem to be more on the ball than they've ever been in the past. Now, I don't know what that means in terms of accomplishments and in terms of fundraising. Maybe I can break that down in a future episode, put together some data. But I think you're right. They care a little bit about Oregon. They can't devote swing state style resources to Oregon. But if we put ourselves in a different position in the future to be more competitive, they would, I think. But we're not a swing state, especially on the presidential level. I haven't been since mm, maybe 2004. Definitely we're in 2000, probably not in 2000, definitely not in 2008. All right, so next group that I want to talk about is the, and I'm going in order of hierarchy for these groups, the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee. This is the Republican committee that elects U.S. Republican senators. So do you think that the NRSC cares a lot about Oregon, a little bit about Oregon, or not at all? Yeah, in terms of the NRSC, I don't think they care at all right now. You know, this is Joe Ray Perkins, I think, what, fifth, sixth cycle running for public office and hasn't really raised any money I mean, I assume doesn't even have any full-time campaign staff. So I think of all of the states on the list, we are probably in the bottom five, if not the bottom two, when it comes to that perspective. So I agree with that. Yeah, part of it is we nominated Joe Ray Perkins again. There was a pretty big majority of people who in that primary who picked a candidate who wasn't Joe Ray Perkins, but very similar to Trump in 2016, not in terms of her candidate quality, but in terms of how the election turned out. A lot of those more normal conservative candidates split the vote. And so Joe Ray was able to get through on her name idea alone. So yeah, NRSC isn't going to put any resources in this race, can't win it. I don't think that they've cared about Oregon since 2014 with Monica Webby before she imploded. I was looking for a kind of word, but there wasn't one. So so I think that they were interested in that race, especially because they viewed Merkley as more vulnerable than Wyden, but it's definitely not a targeted seat, especially may not even have been if we nominate a better candidate just because of how strong Wyden is. But they mm -hmm. prefer they wanted to take on Merkley because he is a weaker candidate from their view. And so I think at some point they may be interested again, but not this year. If it was an open seat and someone yeah. further left had won the primary and we had a strong candidate put forward, I, I think they would be incredibly interested. But yeah. none of those factors are in play right now. <laughs> That's right. Well, and <laughs> Wyden is the older one. So you'd expect him to, I guess, retire first, but he's not. He's going to give it another six year go. He might retire midterm, possibly, and that could potentially open up a seat. Oregon explored a bill to make it so that the governor appoints the U.S. Senate replacement if they retire, but they decided not to move forward with that idea in the last session. So if Wyden retires midterm, he would, it would trigger a special election. And I think that. If they didn't have anything else on their plate, NRSC might actually get involved there just because if it would be a special election, so they wouldn't have any other elections to worry about. So they might get involved. All right, let's go to the NRCC, the National Republican Congressional Committee. This is the U.S. House of Representatives, a committee that focuses on electing them. And then after that, or kind of connected with that, we'll talk about Congressional Leadership Fund, which is a super PAC that supports 
candidates for Congress for U.S. House um, that are Republicans. So does the NRCC care a lot about Oregon, a little bit about Oregon or not at all? Yeah, I mean, I think Oregon is incredibly high up on their list and partially because we've been seeing, I think a lot of people knew that, and I think I think Lori Chavez-Dreamer is 100% going to win. There would really have to be something go wrong that either from a national perspective or a campaign implosion perspective for her to not win her race, even though I do think that Jamie is a good candidate. But I think a lot of people have been surprised to see that Alex Carlatos and Mike Arison, who are you know, in seats where Joe Biden won, I think he won Erickson's by 15 points, and then he won the new seat that Alec is running in by 10. So I mean, pretty significant margins at the presidential level, but the polling, at least the, you know, some that has come out has been pretty interesting to say that it's a much closer race for both of those. And I think a lot of people would have imagined. And of course, we did recently have Kevin McCarthy make a trip out to Oregon, which I think is partially him kind of posturing for some of these people might be elected, I might need them to vote for me to become majority leader. But I would say too, I mean, I know that the NRCC has spent some money, but that also, you know, we had US Speaker Nancy Pelosi fly out to Oregon to help kind of shore up some of these candidates. And there's been a ton of articles about some national money being spent too to kind of drum up the support for these various three candidates in these various three districts. So yeah, I think the this is super high up on the list for the NRCC. They may still see two of those races, specifically the race for Alec, the race for Mike Erickson as stretch goals. But hey, if they can spend a little bit of money to potentially make Democrats spend a lot, and they actually see some viable paths there, right? That's great on all manners, because more Republicans elected to the House, plus more money that will need to be invested by Democrats in the next cycle to try to retake those seats, which will be important for them. So yeah, I wouldn't say it's you know, the most important state, but I think they've, you know, been pretty open actually about the willingness to play in Oregon and how they consider it to be a priority. So. And let's talk about, let's, let's go a little bit more into those individual races. Cause I think it fits here for us to talk about those. So I'm pulling up the 538 ratings for these seats. So for Oregon, 538 generally thinks that Lori Chavez, a dreamer in Congressional District 5, excuse me, is looking for, uh, is looking like she's going to be the favorite there. So here we go. I got it working. So the Oregon 5th, 67 in 100 simulations. Does Lori win 33 in 100? They have Jamie McLeod Skinner winning. So I think that's definitely pretty interesting. Do you think, based on your knowledge of the race and everything that's happening, that that is kind of an accurate depiction of the race or an accurate forecast of what the race is, what's expected to happen in Congressional District 5? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I I mean, the the whole like, out of 100 times this happens, I mean, you probably have to get a little bit more into the numbers to kind of see in terms of the forecast. But I mean, if you look at the projected popular vote, I think this sounds pretty right, right? I mean, it basically has Lori winning likely by 3%. So not a a blowout by any means, but also not a particularly close race, I would say. I mean, obviously close, but it's not like it's, you know, 0.5 or 0.2 or 0.1% or something like that. Their projection is 51 to 48, basically. So yeah, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, again, uh, not the, you know, it's not a, a landslide by any means, but a pretty comfortable margin there, basically. So I think that more realistically sounds seems how I think the race would play out. I think, though, I might actually get a little bit closer to Jamie, maybe like a 2% margin rather than a 3%. But I do think that one will, you know, again, come pretty close from a numbers perspective. But I do think that basically, too, just because Democrats now have these other seats where they may have to spend money in before that they didn't think they were going to, that that's going to divert probably at least some of the funds that Jamie may have been able to grab, which are now going to seats that are a little bit more safer on the blue side. So that's highly advantageous to Lori in terms of the money game that both of them are competing against. So then let's talk about the more recent. So we also had a poll, which we'll talk about in a minute, that was commissioned, I think, by the NRCC for a couple of these congressional races and for the governor's race. So that poll had, it was performed by Clout Research. They get a B slash C. So that would be a low B, a high C. Clout Research gets from the 538 polling project that they do where they rate pollsters on their accuracy. And that showed Chavez Dreamer up 10 points on McLeod Skinner, 44 
to 34. You know, what do you think? Is that a rosy depiction or what? It'd be like firework bombs going off in Lori's election night party if the margin was that big. I mean, the, the right. thing that I just don't see... Be, and I think they had, and we can talk about that one in a second with the Erickson poll. I mean, if that were to happen, you are, I mean, it's going to be a, it's going to be like a bloodbath for Democrats on election night across the mm -hmm. country. Because mm -hmm. what was the percentage again that Joe Biden won this district by? Let me it was see like six can, or something, uh, eight, I, something like that. I want to say between four and six points, but let me see if I can. Um, yeah. And the district has almost certainly gotten more liberals since the 2020 election because more people continue to move to Bend from, you know, states like California and states like Washington, who are clearly more aligning with the Democratic Party. Let's even just say it's a it's a four point, you know, Biden win. So not not too substantial, but again, a healthy margin for an election. I mean, a 14 point difference in a district like that. Wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like it's like there, there's going to be some serious Republican damage basically across the board. It's going to be a really bad night for Democrats. So I don't think something like that will happen. It would be utterly shocking and I would say in terms of the, you know, professionals I've talked with about some of these races in D.C., like, I don't think anybody would expect a margin that big for, for this race in particular, but really for any House race in Oregon. So. so 2020 results on the 5th Congressional District, 52 for Biden, 44 for Trump, so an eight-point Biden district. In 2016, it was a three-point Clinton district. Yeah, so you'd be looking at basically an 18-point swing from yeah. 2020, plus having two more years of people who are more liberal basically move into the district. So I great if that happens, of course, as a you know, Republican, but I definitely do not see that happening. So Yeah, I agree. And I'll talk a little bit more about why with that particular pollster here in a minute, too. So the 6th Congressional District, I think, is also pretty interesting. The NRCC has released that under that same poll, or a version of that, a poll in the 6th Congressional District, they show Mike Erickson beating Andrea Salinas, 43-34, a nine-point lead. I do want to note that Salinas distributed an internal memo from the week prior, polling that was conducted the week prior, and this is all early to mid-August polling, so it is a little dated, showing her up three points on Erickson, 48-45. So which one do you think is more likely to be accurate, or is it somewhere in the middle of those two polls? I mean, it's a little bit hard to say, too, just because and I don't have the actual spending numbers in front of me, of course. But from my understanding, Mike Erickson is also very wealthy and is putting a lot of money into his own campaign. The thing, though, that I would find hard to believe that one candidate is substantially ahead of the other, especially if Erickson was substantially ahead, is that I, I can't imagine like he has... It's not like he has like 100% name recognition or something in a district like that. And of course, that's something that can happen sometimes, right? For example, if you had, I don't know, let's say, you know, Kate Brown or something was running for Congress after she was done being governor, you might expect the margins to be pretty substantial at the front of the race, even in a swing district, just because she was governor, you know, she served at a bunch of other statewide positions. She has very high name ID. And a lot of times, mm -hmm. of course, voters will just vote for the name that they know on the the chart. Actually, one of the reasons Donald Trump did so well in some states like Nevada, he had almost 100% name recognition, mm -hmm. almost, you know, tons of people knew who he was. So I would be pretty surprised if it was substantial in the direction of Erickson. I think that some of these polls probably look a little bit more accurate saying that Salinas is slightly up. But yeah. uh, I mean, it's also just again, her name ID is probably actually not that high. You know, she needs to kind of basically work to bump that up, show people that she's the Democratic candidate, that she's a progressive candidate in the race. Of course, it is a Democratic district in general. But I mean, it also comes down to the factor in terms of how much of Mike Erickson's own money is he actually spent and how much is he willing to spend. So I mean, I know, you know, this will drop this episode on September 14th is probably when folks are listening to this. That, of course, is not that far from election day when you think about it. That's two mm -hmm. months away. To most normal people who, you know, don't work in campaigns for a living, you're like two months. That's not a long period of time at all. But that's like that's like a century, basically, when it comes to electoral politics in terms of being able to run ads, deploy door knockers, send out mail pieces and things like that. So I think you could see some, you know, pretty major fluctuation there as well. But uh, I would be very surprised if uh, Mike Erickson was up by nine points or something like that. And again, very, very bad election night for Democrats, if something like that is actually accurate, like probably something we have, I don't, 
I mean, that would be like 2010 levels of blowout, I would think so. Right. Well, and the other thing too, more states are starting to adopt this trend just because of early voting that takes place in some states. But in Oregon, remember, ballots are mailed, I think it's four to six weeks before Mm -hmm. the election or about four weeks before the election. So really, you only have a month until, quote unquote, election day starts in Oregon. And so there isn't really that much time left for people to make up their minds. Before. And isn't it around the, like usually with the mail-in ballots that half? Let's I know I remember when I was on the Webby campaign as an intern, someone told me this, but it's like forty to fifty percent of ballots in Oregon are cast before election day itself. Is that number accurate? I just totally make that up. I do not have numbers in front of me to double check that, but my rough estimation is like half before the couple days, before, you know, in the lead up to election day, about half yeah. of ballots are cast and then the remaining half are cast in the last like day, day of or day before the election. That's very rough estimate, but I think that that's close. So and the, the other thing with six, the sixth congressional district is a new seat. So it's not it's never voted as itself before, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of estimating based on these areas and how they voted before. But I don't know that they would vote a lot differently just because they're part of a new congressional district. But it, you might see that make an adjustment. But this was a Biden 54-41 district and a Clinton plus seven district. So certainly maybe on the edge of competitiveness here for Republicans. But I, I mean, I think you're right. So the clout, the thing I have, clout has a difficult record in Oregon, I'd say that BC, that B or C grade from 538 is probably about right. And that's actually the same grade that Salinas's pollster has just to be upfront. GBAO is the name of that, that pollster. And they also get a, a B and a C. And, yeah, and all I mean, these I groups say... all do national, do races all over the country. And so you can't, obviously can't control for all those different local factors. I mean, I think they try, but definitely a difficult, <laughs> difficult polling record in Oregon. I mean, they showed Trump up in Oregon on Clinton at one point, which I don't think happened. And they've they've, <laughs> they've had some other interesting results that they've published that were maybe not even outliers <laughs> in terms of how surprising the results were. Yeah. And I mean, I would say too, we'll obviously talk about the last competitive race in a second, is that the Democrats have been, and I think historically have done a good job of this, is that in Oregon, they have put forward good candidates. Like I think Jamie, I think Rep Salinas, I think Commissioner Hoyle are very good candidates who may even be pretty progressive, but are not, and I don't want to use the term crazy in a derogative way, but like, it's not like someone who is, you know, Earl, you know, Rep Blumenthauer, who's like, very outwardly liberal, like does the bike stuff. Like it's not like in, you know, and this happened with Republicans and quite a few of the competitive house justices and stuff. Like they've elected someone who's just kind of crazy. And there's obviously Democrats across the country who've elected people who are very far to the left or very far to the right, whatever. That didn't happen in either of these races. So again, those are three very good candidates, I think, that have a strong track record of fundraising. And I know that a pretty major swing constituency across the country is suburban women. And of course, they're all three female candidates, which I'm sure will help them at the end of the day kind of coalesce that vote as well. So yep. uh, I don't think Democrats necessarily lucked out, you know, in terms of selecting the three of them. I think that's just kind of been consistency with some of the candidates is that they've generally been pretty strong politicians and, you know, kind of political operatives and folks like that who can conduct themselves. So I think that, you know, Dems lucked out there as well. That's definitely kind of a helpful turn for them against this tide. So, yes. Oh, and then uh, that last race, Congressional District 4. So we don't have a poll from August on this. We have a late July poll released by the NRCC and Scarlatos showing Hoyle 46, Scarlatos 40. One, um, so it's definitely possible those numbers have changed. This is of the three districts we've talked about. I think it's numbers wise, it's the hardest district. I'm pulling up the rating now from Cook Political, but this was a pretty heavy Biden, uh, pretty heavy Biden. And so the fourth congressional district before redistricting, very close district. But the 2020 election results from this district, 54 42. So 10, 10 points contains a little bit more of that rural area, or at least it did, but it lost, you know, like Roseburg and some areas like that. So that caused it to be much more, uh, at least a portion of Roseburg, it looks like based on the congressional map here, lost Albany, which is a little bit more of a conservative area. And so that kind of tightened it up to be 
much more blue. And then those more conservative areas, especially Albany, I'm now in the new fifth congressional district. And that's why that district is more competitive and CD is less competitive from the numbers wise. But you've still seen national figures endorse Alex Carlatos. You've still seen him raise quite a bit of money in that race. So I think Republicans are still trying to make it competitive. And the fact that it's an open seat adds a little bit to the competitiveness in a Mm -hmm. way that a a district with an incumbent. I mean, also, that's one of the other key topics for that. You talked about Democrats doing a good job of recruiting candidates. And and the reason they had to do that is because they have no incumbents. Jamie McLeod Skinner Mm -hmm. beat Kurt Schrader, who was the only incumbent that Democrats put forward. He lost his primary. The sixth is a new district. And the fourth, Peter Fazio, uh, retired and endorsed Val Hoyle. And so you see um, all of these districts being open, I think, at the same time also probably not being an ideal scenario if you were planning things out from the Democratic side. But they try to make up for that by recruiting, like you said, some very strong candidates. So the fourth congressional district looking probably the third on the list in terms of most competitive, but still seeing some national interest, although no reservations on TV from the NRCC or the Congressional Leadership Fund, but they have reserved time in Portland for CD5 and CD6. Yeah, we'll just have to see kind of how those continue to play out. But I know, you know, I mean, Alec is raising a lot of money. He also spends it pretty quickly, though, because I imagine a lot of it is small dollar fundraising. So that can be, you know, helpful in some ways if it's boosting name ID and you're touching voters a lot, even, you know, voters slash small donors and things like that. But to be determined. But again, I think it's, you know, at very worst for Republicans, it's really just maybe distracting time and effort that they would rather be spending focusing on, you know, CD5 or the Salinas versus the Erickson race. So. All right. So let's move on to the RGA, the Republican Governors Association. Alex, would you say they are very interested in Oregon, a little bit interested in Oregon or not interested in Oregon at all? I would say there is curiosity there, but as we have chatted about before, I think that there's been, you know, and I think Christine Jason is a really strong candidate. There is a lot of weirdness about this race in terms of that you have a former Democrat running as an independent, Betsy Johnson, of course, who is attacking the Republican and the Democrat as being a member of the far left and the far right. And, you know, basically hoping that she is siphoning off votes from Democrats who would be voting for Tina Kotek, who, you know, of course, if you're Drazen, you're hoping that you're winning independence and things like that, you know, coalescing around your base. But from my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the money game for Drazen from the RGA has not been what it was like for Chris Dudley or for Newt Bueller. And I do want to add a caveat there that, again, we are, you know, as you said, about a month out or so from early voting. We're two months out from Election Day, but the the clock is sort of ticking there in terms of when those dollars are going to be spent most efficiently. I would say, too, that there has been some interesting upsets that may, you know, make these races and may, may make Drazen actually a more suitable candidate for the RGA than before. And the two examples that I'll give are a very Trumpy aligned candidate, a very conservative guy, won the primary, for example, in Maryland versus the Commerce Secretary or something like that to run against the Democrats. That individual almost certainly lose the race come November. Whereas, of course, Maryland, blue state, but Governor Larry Hogan, who's actually campaigning in Oregon, he was able to win that seat twice. And of course, if you know, folks thought if his candidate could get through his preferred candidate, Republicans might have a strong shot at that. Another race in Massachusetts, there's a very conservative Republican who will be running under the Republican banner in the general election compared to the very moderate, very socio-liberal Charlie Baker, who, you know, now is basically, I don't know if he's technically term limited, but he's not running for governor again. So I think that those are probably two seats. Republicans would have wanted to spend a lot of money defending, but now they probably don't really see a viable path to either of those of the RGA. So partially that actually might help boost Drazen's profile in terms of what are our pickup opportunities and what are the seats that we actually want to play in. And I would say she's been getting quite a bit of national attention, right? She got to go on the Sean Hannity show, which I'm sure was very good for her fundraising. She's been on Fox News a couple of times and things like that. So I'm sure that her Profile is being watched, right, from people over there, the comms people, you know, people who are kind of doing the analytics around the races. But 
obviously we can read press releases and things like that, that the groups think Oregon is so important, but money always talks, as my old boss used to say. So he would say, never read the PR, look, look at the checkbook, basically. How much money did they sign for this? So that's something I think we'll have to see. I don't think it's out of the question at all. I've talked to a bunch of people who are super interested in the race, partially just because it's really fascinating dynamic. But again, the is the money going to be there or not? That's kind of the big question at the end of the day. So. Well, and so 538 says Kotec is slightly favored to win 67 out of 100 opportunities in their uh, simulated model. Kotec wins, Drazen wins 33 and 100. Betsy Johnson doesn't win any. They predict the vote share as 46, 43, 10. In terms of latest polling, that that clout um, organization released a poll showing Drazen up one point on Kotech 33-32. There was a June poll from the RSLC, the State Leadership Committee, which we'll talk about in a minute, also Republicans. Drazen, 32-31. Betsy Johnson released an internal poll. I'm not giving you the numbers. It's garbage. And then Drazen had an, another internal that she, or not an internal, excuse me, <clears throat> Nelson Research did a poll themselves and released it showing Drazen up two on Kotech. And so not a lot of polling being released by Democrats in that race. And going back to the congressional races, you saw polls refuting the Republican polls from Salinas. You saw polling for Hoyle showing her head. You didn't see McLeod Skinner release any internal. She told the Oregonian she was plus one or two in her internals. And so I think one of the things that you think about, um, certainly there are some strategists who don't think this way, but I think in most cases, you don't want a poll out there publicly that is very wrong about your race because mm -hmm. your funders will notice that. And so typically, if there's an egregiously wrong poll, you will release your own polling that refutes it in order to at least combat the narrative. You saw that happen, especially with Salinas. You're not seeing that in the governor's race from Kotech. And then that kind of leads me to believe that this race is is either this close with Drazen up slightly or Kotech's up slightly, but it it's all within the margin, right? And so maybe she'll come out with a poll here shortly showing herself with a big lead and that will kind of change the narrative. But right now the narrative is close. They're not refuting that with their, you know, their own polling. So I yeah, think and I mean, and going on the other side of the sword too that I was talking about is it's a huge boon for Kotec that these races in Maryland, these races in in Massachusetts, they're not going to be competitive because that allows Democrats to then again at the the DGA, which is the Democratic Governor Association, to take money that they were originally going to spend fighting in Massachusetts, fighting in Maryland, and redirect it to places like Oregon, which I'm sure they probably did not think was going to need an infusion of funds. But, you know, now at this point might be more open to providing something like that, basically, just because the coffers and the strategy has changed a little bit. So, but yeah, I think that's an interesting point you bring about the polling, not something I've heard anyone else say. So the other thing about the governor's race, I think, in terms of the funding, she hasn't reached Dudley or Bueller levels quite yet, although she's at like 1.6 million DGAs in for about 1.9 last I checked. I think there's still time for them, and I think they will, because in terms of pickups, looking at the governor's forecast overall for for Republicans, they've got competitive. So they are playing, I'd say Republicans are playing a lot of defense too, a little bit of defense. They've got, they're trying to hold the Arizona governor's race. It's open. They're trying to hold Kemp, which it seems like they're going to do in Georgia. But then they have a lot of pickup opportunities, and in order of margin in terms of closeness from 538. They've got Nevada governor as the first closest pickup for Republicans, and then Oregon is second. And so I think mm -hmm. the executive director for RGA has been out here a couple of times, and has said that Oregon is their top pickup opportunity. And, you know, that three-way race is working in Republicans' favor because splitting the Democratic vote, which typically is a larger share, um, is, a, is a larger share because there's more registered Democrats here. So I think I can make a case that they're a lot interested here just because, you know, maybe they have more competitive races in places and so they aren't able to spend as much as they have before or maybe the money's still coming. But I think it's like they're probably their second top race. Kansas more likely to flip since of the candidate they nominated seems mm -hmm. to be like a pretty solid Republican in my view. Although 538 thinks that the Democrat might actually hold that race. So it'll be interesting to see. But I think in terms of flips, I think it's Kansas and then it's Oregon slash Nevada for them. And I think that there's probably enough money for them to continue unloading on the Democrats there. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. It would shock me if those RGA numbers are 
maybe they've even increased right now. It just hasn't been, you know, we haven't seen the public ad buys just yet, but I would, I would be shocked if there wasn't a very big sum of money being spent relatively soon. So yeah, I agree with you. I think it's very high up on the list. All right. And then the last organization that I want to talk about, and I don't know if you have as much experience with them. I've worked a lot more legislative races, so I have a little bit more experience, but the Republican State Legislative Committee, RSLC, do you think they're a lot interested in Oregon, a little bit interested in Oregon or not? Not at all. Honestly, this is, I think this is a better one for you. I mean, I've seen, you know, they've dedicated to spending some money. I've seen the press releases, things like that, but I'm Curious of what you sort of think, plus just your kind of general analysis on, you know, what do you think the potential? Obviously, there's a lot more. We should let's not get into the individual races themselves because there's there's a lot, a bunch of them. But what is the high level? I mean, one, I'm curious of your peak in their interest. But two, what is the high level potential for Republicans? Like, is it picking up two Senate seats and six House seats? Is it picking up? Four Senate seats, one House seat. What do those numbers kind of look like in your mind, too? So I'm going to see if I can find the um, there's a different group that does state legislative chamber ratings on like which chambers are most likely to change hands in the upcoming elections. So I'll see if I can find that while I'm talking. So in terms of the press related stuff, they've said that Oregon is a top flip chambers opportunity for them, the state Senate specifically, they identified and then gains in Democratic strongholds they identified for the Oregon House. So the opportunity to flip a chamber in Oregon hasn't happened in a while. They split control of the House in 2010. And they lost split control of the Senate by one seat, like 250 votes or fewer in 2010. And they've also, in terms of the money side, spent more money. I don't have the total in front of me. They just distributed another 100 plus K to both the House and Senate Republicans getting 100 K plus each. So I think that they've invested more money than they ever have before in Oregon. And so in terms of the way money talks, they seem to be... I would say that out of all the groups that are interested, the top two are the NRCC and the RSLC, just because of the way that districts are drawn up, right? Statewide Oregon is a lot tougher than individual district by district Oregon, where you have some better opportunities. And so let me see, I would say that the RSLC is extremely interested in Oregon just on that, on that front in particular. And yeah, can't get into well, that. And then of course, many you races. have into to even know what would be competitive or what. But I would say there's at least a five, probably six or seven, maybe that are, you know, on the edge in terms of competitiveness in the state Senate, and then five to 10 House races that are competitive. Yeah. And then I mean, of course, I'm sure to pique their interest, you have local mega donors like Phil Knight. And I'm sure that sparks more of the interest too, because of course, if they can come in and be a complimentary partner with some big donors here who are already ready to spend funds on some of the local groups and the candidates, that obviously helps quite a bit to attract interest. Yep. And that group specifically, you're talking about bring balance to Salem has raised quite a bit of money. I'm looking at the list of of top PACs fundraising. They have uh, Bring Balance to Salem has raised, uh, reported raising $3.2 million. It's the largest non-candidate pack in the state right now. So certainly a lot of money that, you know, if you're bringing balance to Salem, you're expecting that money to primarily go to Republicans. And so I think that that's another thing that you can put on there that's not the RSLC specifically, but it's probably going to increase interest from the RSLC in terms of seeing that there's state resources and that there's resources available to Republicans that haven't been available in the past that this group, I think, is is pretty new. So yeah, I would say in terms of rating them, they're very interested in Oregon. So let's close it out with a couple of kind of future looking questions. I'm going to ask you to make some some broad level predictions about stuff. So what are the top issues you think you could do top two or top three issues you think that are going to be relevant to Republicans running in Oregon over the next two months as we get to election day and the next month as we get to, you know, ballots going out? I think the most important one, and you've heard, I'm sure if you've gotten the ads on YouTube or TV ads, et cetera, inflation. And, you know, they just came out with numbers, you know, an article that I read this morning, which is the morning of September 13th, you're listening to this on September 14th, uh, hello from the past. The inflation is, you know, numbers on 
And some things that's gone down, right? Like the price of gas, I know has gone down. There's been a couple of other things, but the price of food, energy, and then rent has just absolutely skyrocketed over the last year. And I mean, you can't really think of better issues to run on as a candidate than saying the other guy and the other gal is responsible for you paying tons of tons more money for all of these things. And I, I mean, so yeah, I think those are those are the primary sort of issues that I've heard basically all of those candidates talk about. We've interviewed many of them on the podcast before, yeah. and they've brought up almost all of them. And it's not like you're going to be able to wish inflation or anything like that away. So that will continue to be I'm 100% sure they are being sent talking points on the state level, the consultant level, and the national level saying, hammer them on inflation and hammer them on Biden's poor handling of inflation. Probably you're even, and you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong, you might not see some of this. I mean, you probably even do, I'm assuming, see some of the state house candidates and state senate candidates attacking their opponents for the inflation, but then, you know, for blaming it on Biden or whatever. Yeah. Uh, maybe blaming it on Kate Brown or Tina Kotek also kind of in that way, but that's almost certainly a prominent issue. And then, I would say you might see some other stuff like the critical race theory kind of seep in there, maybe some of the other sort of cultural issues. But I'm, you know, it's, there's been so many things happening that have kind of shifted the conversation. So I think that's yeah. caused a lot of candidates to do their sort of politician pivot, which is, you know, where last week critical race theory was the most important thing in the world. And then this week it's the, you know, Biden gun ban or whatever, but the inflation and the economic issues, which I think are probably the ones that matter the most to voters anyway, those will stay consistent up until election day. I'm almost certain of that. So I think the other thing that is one of those kind of of the moment issues is the Dobbs decision and abortion. You see a lot of Democrats across the country running on abortion and I think it'll be interesting to see if that particular issue holds in terms of working for Democrats. You just saw Lindsey Graham come out with a 15-week federal abortion ban. So if that, and I think what he's trying to do there is basically change the narrative and say this is what the majority of voters want based on setting some, some of their polls. And so, you know, Republicans have been kind of on the defense on abortion lately and at, whereas in the past, they've been able to talk about the born alive bills and stuff like that, the fetal pain bills. And so they've been able to put Democrats on the defensive. But now that that row is overturned, Republicans are a little bit on the defensive and Democrats think they have an opportunity there. And so they're taking it. It'll be interesting to see if that interest in abortion holds all the way through the election or if it starts to tail off, if other a new issue takes hold. So we'll see what emerges in that kind of October surprise zone. Yeah. And to add to the abortion, I'm really curious to see what happens post-election because the example, which again, I don't know if this is a great comparison, like we'll, we'll see what happens. But in 2018, there was the Kavanaugh hearing, which took place in either late September or October or whatever. A bunch mm -hmm. of Republicans on Twitter got really pissed off, basically, in terms of how they thought he was being treated through that whole process. And a lot of sort of like DC political types attributed, you know, we got really fired up over the Kavanaugh thing. And like, that's what helped to turn the election. There is literally zero data that supports that. Like, basically, my boss has this lovely old boss, a lovely graph, he'd show donors. Republican enthusiasm during then was already going like this. And the Kavanaugh stuff happened. You saw like a very slight increase, but it was already going upwards, basically in 2018. Or sorry, Republicans didn't win in 2018, but we held the number of Senate seats and House seats that we didn't actually think that we were going to. We thought it was going to be a bigger blow up by Democrats. But a lot of people contributed that to Republican base being pissed off about Kavanaugh. But like there's there's no actual evidence to support that. Like there's, there's no polling, there's no research. Like that's just kind of like a DC Twitter thing where, you know, you know us media types, we think we know everything. So I'm being a good pod podcast host pretending that I know everything. Alex is trying to say that uh, Twitter is not real life. That's what you're trying to say? Twitter is not real life. But to go on the other side of the Twitter is not real life, you're seeing so many news articles saying like, you know, the, the female voters are really pissed off about the abortion ban and the Democrats are mobilizing and rallying and things like this. And the thing that I would always say is uh, feel free to read those articles. And I mean, again, I'm sure there's people listening to this podcast who are, you know, very pro-choice and are pretty pumped up to vote against Republicans partially because of this. But you need to actually look, is there any evidence that's not some one-off poll or anything like that that actually shows this is going to be the case? And 
we will not actually know that until the election concludes. Like it's not going to be possible to sort of look at that turnout rate, total enthusiasm gap and things like that, both in Oregon, but across the country until all of the ballots are actually counted. But I think that is really kind of up in the air thing that I think a lot of, you know, Democrats are counting on the abortion issue is going to cause this big turnout really help them. I think that the cat is not is still, you know, not out of the bag, basically on that. Uh, I do think, though, what it has caused, too, is there is probably some Republicans, and I don't think anyone has done this in Oregon, but who will run into some sort of abortion landmine where they will say a very dumb thing about abortion. Uh, and of course, we, you know, Republicans literally lost the Senate in what was that 20? Was it 2010 or 2012? Because we had like three or four candidates who said just really, really dumb things, basically, and lost the races because of it. I'm sure that has happened somewhere across the country. I haven't seen anything like that happen in Oregon. That's kind of a landmine people should be aware of. But I think that most of the candidates so far have been able to avoid falling into that doesn't mean they won't, but at least haven't really seen that so far. So yeah, and I think the other thing that I think about that too, was that you saw the first sign that I saw recently was an article in Politico talking about how a voter registration among women is up in Texas. And they think that that might be related to the Dobbs decision. So that's the first really solid data point that I've seen that actually contributes potentially to Dobbs kind of creating democratic encouragement where it wasn't maybe before, maybe there weren't any issues that were encouraging more women to turn out and vote Democrat. But you still can't test that prior to election day. So you still have to wait till election day results to see are the races in Texas closer or do Democrats win some close races or some races they weren't supposed to, right? And then do you see that kind of come across? Is it a one-time event that just occurred in Texas that could have had other issues connected to it? Or is it a trend that you see nationwide? And so that's, like you said, that I think that enthusiasm seems to be high on both sides at this point, that this is a closer election. You're not seeing all the signs of the quote unquote red wave, but it is still going to be a bit of a referendum on Biden in terms of the results with Republicans likely to pick up seats in the U.S. House. The Senate still a toss up or slightly lean Democrat, which you saw in 2010, by the way, Republicans didn't flip the U.S. Senate until 2014. Yeah, they, they blew it in 2010. They blew it in 10. They blew it in 12. And so it actually took them a couple extra cycles to gain control of the Senate. And then they held it until until 2020. <clears throat> so I think that the Senate, you kind of have, I mean, the situation is this is the way our system was set up where the House responds much more quickly to electoral change than the Senate does. So even if you see a really conservative Republican year, that doesn't necessarily change the composition of the Senate as quickly. It takes more cycles for something like that to take hold. So. So in terms of those issues or even just other issues, what do you think is the future of the Republican Party in Oregon? I know that's a pretty open question, so you can take it's that. A, a really easy go. one to, to answer to close us out very quick. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I think that there is, I mean, what is, there's been like three, four party chairmen, no, three party chairmen in the last year with the ORP. I know that we have Justin Wong, and I've heard a lot of good things about him from both the more sort of established, I don't know, I mean, using the word establishment is so stupid, but the more sort of like moderate Republicans versus like the grassrootsy people seem to really like him as well. So yeah. I think that folks, we actually really lucked out because of that, because, you know, we had some, we'll call it strife with, you know, former chairman Hurd and his whole resignation process and the letter and all that, that sort of shenanigans that happened. But I mean, I think that the thing that, will really make the Oregon Republican Party as an entity successful is like they it's really got to start at candidate recruitment. And frankly, I think that they have gotten pretty lucky this year in terms of, you know, they had Lori, who, of course, is the candidate right now. I think she's a fantastic candidate run against Jimmy Crumpacker, who I also thought was a very good candidate. So they certainly lucked out that they had two top tier candidates in that race. They were able to find Mike Erickson, who, of course, has, you know, can substantially self-fund, self-made businessman, et cetera. Great opportunity for someone to spend a lot of money on that race. They have Alice Carlottos, who is literally an international celebrities in some ways, also a fantastic fundraiser. So where it counts with some of those races, you know, and then of course with Christine Drazen, and there's a bunch of different state level candidates. I'm sure that you could knock off some of the names in terms of good recruits people were able to pick up. And I know that is something that you had said when we did this interview with you with Ben was that uh, Republicans did actually have 
quite a few good House and Senate candidates on the state level that were, you know, strong candidates to head into November. But I think that that that's got to be a more than a one cycle thing, because if we kind of roll back to, you know, you know, four years from now and there's a bunch of, you know, really bad candidates that can't raise any money, you know, and maybe don't take things too seriously, then I think you'll you will halt potentially good progress that is being made by the state party as an entity, which is happening right now, because the ORP really should be the primary vehicle for recruitment. And if they're not recruiting good candidates, then no donor is going to take them seriously and no national organization will take them seriously. So that's what I think is probably if I had to pick the one big question and like maybe kind of the defining thing that I think Justin could do as chairman is like good candidates each cycle. I think like that will boost the love and attention for him across all vectors of the Republican Party, plus have donors take the organization much more seriously again. Well, I would say, too, if you uh, you want to answer it even more broadly, I wasn't necessarily just asking just about the Oregon Republican Party as a group, but like Republicans in general who are in Oregon. And I think, you know, overall for them, I also want to ask you about this, because is it true in other states that the state party is more responsible for recruiting than the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans in their state legislatures? Because I think that's the most interesting piece mm-hmm. of it is if the state party is supposed to be doing that right in Oregon, it's been true for a long time that the caucuses are most responsible for recruiting and spend the most time on it. Not that the state party doesn't try to help or doesn't mm-hmm. get involved, but they're just not the primary source of contact or the one doing uh, you know, the, the bulk of the grunt work. So I think that would be interesting to see if that's something that is that that model isn't replicated in other states. But, you know, overall, I think for Republicans in Oregon, it's the hardest sell you do they can build on wins they can't build on losses right and Mm -hmm. so for the last few cycles we have either held where we're at or lost seats in most circumstances right i mean we always win congressional district two and we will again because it got even more conservative than it was the last time but you know really beyond that at the congressional level we haven't competed in a long time for Congress. Now we're competing in two to three seats, right? And so that's a big change. And if we can win at least one, maybe two of those seats, we're going to be able to build on that. Same too mm-hmm. at the legislature. Uh, last cycle, the House Republicans picked up net one seat. They won two and they lost one. Um, that was the first time there'd been legislative pickups in quite a few, couple of cycles. Um, I think we hadn't picked up any seats since 2010 before that, right? So it was a decade of not making any gains in the legislature. Now, if we pick up a handful of seats in both chambers, we can build on that, right? And then assuming 2024 is a competitive landscape, and if we nominate a candidate that's more popular in Oregon than Trump is, Trump struggled, you know, he was popular in other places, but he wasn't super popular in Oregon. He was especially in his reelection, an anchor that Republicans were having to try to outperform in order to hold on to their seats or to win competitive seats. And so if we get a more popular Republican candidate um, that's specifically better tailored to Oregon or, or performs better in Oregon than Trump does, even if they're a similar type of candidate, um, you'll see Republicans in Oregon be able to build on that. So I think the key is winning this cycle in order to build on uh, those wins next cycle and that it really doesn't matter how good your candidate recruitment is. It does matter how good your candidate recruitment is, but it can still be good and you lose races and then you can't build on anything because you haven't proven that you can win. And that's important for donors is to be able to show them that you can win. And so if this big effort with millions going in national and locally for Republicans pans out and we do well, that will make it more likely that those dollars come back to Oregon or stay in Oregon in the next cycle, as opposed to going to other states or just not getting written because Republicans aren't competitive. Yeah. And I mean, and again, the way it comes down pretty simply there, it's can you deliver? And that's the big question we'll have to find out come November when some of these votes actually start to be counted. So, yep. Well, thank you, Alex. Really enjoyed this conversation. I hope we have uh, opportunity to do this again. Maybe we'll we'll surrender the mics and allow Ben to talk about how the blue wave is coming to Oregon. He can make his case for that, but really enjoyed having you on. If folks want to get in touch with you or follow you, is there a good place that they can do that since you're not on the podcast in their ears every single week anymore? Yeah, they can actually email me at my Oregon 360 email address, which is oh, man. 
Alex, which is A-L-E-X, at O-R-360. The number is not 360 spelled out. 360. So, yeah, exactly. 360.org. So, yeah, feel free to send me an email. Again, I do still help Ben write the newsletter basically every week. So I'm sure if you're... And if you're not reading our newsletter, you should definitely be reading our newsletter. So check that out. But, yeah, I would just say it's going to be... really exciting cycle i think regardless of what happens i would be shocked if there wasn't some sort of upset that happens with republicans and then some sort of upset that happens with democrats in this time around with oregon so i think it will be a certainly a much more exciting quote-unquote competitive cycle than my last competitive cycle working in oregon politics which was 2014 which uh was not particularly exciting come election night so yeah i think we have a, a good one up in front of us and i'm Glad we were able to do this. And yeah, we're also hoping to potentially do this as a deep dive for the Democrats as well. Kind of as Reagan said, exploring some different types of episodes and providing some different content before the election. So thanks again for tuning in. Yep. If you guys want to subscribe to The Way by the Oregon 360 or get the Monday morning liftoff with all of the links and headlines you need to know about Oregon politics, visit theoregonway.com dot substack.com make sure you get subscribed there um you can follow me at reagan canope on twitter uh, thanks so much for uh tuning in and uh, ben will hopefully be back next week thanks so much everyone